parents made one terrible suggestion. It's called the heroic dose. The heroic dose is take more than is good for you and then make it harder by being alone. Hello guys, welcome to another video in Tom's channel. I hope you like it, subscribe, leave your like before anything else and enjoy. Hey guys, so believe it or not, we're actually in Hawaii right now, staying in Jay Alvarez's house. But it's a different story for another day. I'm actually really excited to present this next episode of the Your Mate Tom podcast, where I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. James Fadiman, who is one of the OG psychedelic researchers. Like this guy used to study this stuff back when it was actually legal, which is like very hard for me to fathom. So we went into some really deep topics, talking about psychedelics, obviously, microdosing, overcoming challenging trips, the Terence McKenna 5 gram horror dose which went into the end and also what was really interesting we talked about the different personality cells how we're not just one continuous being but we're multiple personality cells that come out in different situations that was absolutely fascinating and his next book which about that should be coming out this year sometime but yeah I'll leave all the links in the description box below if you want to connect with Dr. James Fadiman but yeah Definitely the most knowledgeable person that I've had the privilege of interviewing. So this is so cool uh, for me to have this opportunity. And yeah, I'd love to thank you guys because it's not just me. It's you guys who are supporting the show, especially like on Patreon and, you know, sharing the videos and stuff like that who have allowed this to even happen in the first place. And besides, well, but besides that, I'd also love to give a shout out to Jason Stevenson for sponsoring this video. Jason does guided meditations, completely free. You can check it out on his website, jasonstevenson.net. And if you guys want to support the show, you can check out Patreon, get some merch, do what you gotta do, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this one, so let us know what you think in the comments section below. And I'll see you on the next video. By the way, guys, for those who don't know, we've got some massive projects in the works, one of which is an LSD trip simulation, which is might actually be the most uh, accurate replication of an LSD trip on YouTube so far. So we'll have to see how we go. And of course, you guys will have to judge. And also a documentary I recorded in Chile, which in my opinion, I think it's the best piece of work that I have created so far. So I'm super excited. Um, it's still a one-man show, so of course, there's still a lot of things that i got to do, but things are happening. Things are happening. That's it. That's all you have to know. Alright guys, enjoy. Well, I'd love to just get started and uh, can you just tell us about the day when psychedelics were legal and you were studying it, like you were researching psychedelics and yeah, just how did that all happen and why did you get interested in studying these compounds in the first place? Well, I was, um, I was a Harvard undergraduate, and I had a favorite professor who liked me, and I liked him, and he was another young, he was young, called mm -hmm. Richard Alpert, who yep. became Ram Dass. Ram Dass, yeah. And after college, um, I went and was living in Paris on as little money as possible, and writing um, one of the great un unappreciated novels, even I don't like it. Um, <laughs> And uh, Richard came over to Paris on his way to a conference in Copenhagen where Dick Alpert, Tim Leary, and Aldous Huxley were going to present to the World Psychological Congress pretty much the, the first appearance of psychedelics um, in, in that world. Mm. Uh, been a lot of research, but most of us didn't know at that time there was any. And I had no interest in drugs. I didn't drink coffee. Oh, wow. Um, 
And so this man who was really my mentor said to me, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me and I want to share it with you. And I thought, how bad can that be? <laughs> and then he reaches in his pocket and comes out with this little bag thing of pills. And I think, what the is going on? <laughs> and he says something that these, this is, he explained a tiny bit that I didn't understand a word. And we're sitting in a little cafe in Paris on a major boulevard. And so I take whatever I took, uh, probably what would be now called a moderate dose of psilocybin. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, maybe a gram, gram and a half, something like that. Um, and we're sitting there and it's the, the colors are getting a little brighter and the noise is a little more harmonious. And I'm very aware of the, the conversations in back of me as people are walking, you know, up and down. And then I realize my French isn't good enough to, to hear those conversations now hearing very clearly. Yeah. And I said to, to Dick, this is this is too much for me. He said, well, um, why don't we go to your room? And I said, that'd be great. He said, yeah, it's too much for me, too. I said, but you didn't take anything. He said, it's my first time in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so he went up to my fifth floor walk up and um, I, I understood there was a great deal more to the world than I understood. This was not a, a, a blow away experience. This did not change my life, but it opened me and allowed me to relax certain of my beliefs. Like if you don't have a big library, you're probably not alive and mm. kind of really meaningful things like that. Mm. Um, and so um, a few weeks later, life had gone on. Um, a week later, actually, I went to Copenhagen and followed Dick and had another experience. And they were at a level where they were talking about incredible human closeness, mm. the kind of thou that Martin Buber talks about. Um, and that you would never ask a friend something if it was clearly going to be an imposition. But knowing that you could ask a friend practically anything if you, you know, if you really wanted it. Um, so life went on. He went back to the States. Um, I, uh, I had made an agreement with my draft board that I would go to graduate school rather than Vietnam. Yeah. So, so I showed Good up choice. at graduate school and, um, there was one little group near Stanford University in Palo Alto that was doing legal psychedelic work. It had a little clinic. And I joined them because I was this cool guy who'd had psilocybin. And at that point, they looked at me and said, you know, you should really try what we're doing. And I said, sure, that's fine. <laughs> and I showed up. And I was given this little thing of LSD, probably about, probably about 300 mics. And I looked at them and I said, aren't you taking it? Because the, the Harvard method was everybody took it with everybody. Right. And they said, actually, no, we don't, we don't really need it. And I, at that point, I figured, okay. <laughs> so at that, that group had, in, had developed the, the, what we now call the, the, the usual psychedelic room, the comfortable living room yeah. with the flowers and the art and the music and the eye shades. And um, by the end of the day, my worldview had totally changed, and it has never, uh, it has never shrunk back. Hmm. And one of the things that I realized is among, and this is again very common in high doses in a good setting, uh, called classical mystical experience or transcendence or seeing fundamentally that Jim Fadiman 
first-year graduate student was a subset of a kind of larger being that I might call me. Mm. Larger being was really wise and really kind and also didn't get born and didn't die and was part of all things. And that, to me, in that state, made total sense. And then for reasons that are very unclear to me, I resumed being Jim Fadiman in this little body um, as a first-year student in psychology, psychology which now meant almost nothing. Hmm. And, and there I was, realizing I had seen through that psychology was so limited to the worldview I now had, this kind of mystical worldview. Yeah. But I really couldn't say much or they would send me to Vietnam. Hmm. Yeah. So... So I became the only graduate student in psychology who wore a coat and tie every day. And I wanted them to think that I was a straight nerd. And the tragedy is, these are all professors of psychology. The, the tragedy is it worked perfectly. Mm, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but but that, that day, and it was, a, a, it was October 19th, 1961, long time ago. Yeah. I recognized what we would now call the classic psychedelic experience. And the first publication that I worked on was called The Psychedelic Experience for the Journal of Neuropsychology. Um, and life has unfolded since then. Wow. And what was the, the common view on psychedelics during that time? Well, this was during the time when Leary and Alpert became uh, world infamous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... There was a very confusing world, which there was lots and lots of people who were taking psychedelics and realizing at the very least that the the way the world was running wasn't very effective. Mm. And that that the institutions, education, business um, weren't taking into account this larger state and that there was a feeling that that um, loving one another was actually as important as any other life value. And the kind of people kind of, you know, had the Dalai Lama been around, we all would have just left him leery and again sat with him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also that there was this substance which you could either meditate for 20 years or you could take this substance with a bunch of your friends and go lie in the park. Mm. So it was very peculiar because we were this um, quickly growing uh, group of people who had a great deal in common with each other and less and less in common with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I, I, I had a dual life where during the day in my coat and tie, I was in classes and I was taking notes and I was being as boring as anybody else, maybe a little more boring with a little work. And then in the evening, I would be reading the Tibetan book of the dead and the Popol Vol, And I'd be uh, looking at, at Blake and at Van Gogh, and what I was trying to do was figure out what what was the actual larger view, and why were these people like the Tibetan Book of the Dead? Um, why did they seem to know so much mm. about what I had experienced? And so that is how I began to to realign my world, um, and I actually managed to do a dissertation on the effectiveness of psychedelic therapy because I was sitting in once or twice a week with an all day high dose guided, what we would now call embedded therapy session. Wow. How high of a dose? Um, well, 400 was not un unlikely. Wow. And for 
for alcoholics, you went as high as 800. Mm. Yeah, because LSD yeah. was used a lot to treat alcoholism back in the 60s, wasn't it? Yeah. Simply, when you had this transcendental experience, one of the things that you realized is that um, your body didn't like alcohol. Mm. And that you had a kind of moral obligation not to harm your body. And the other thing that would happen with our, with our, we had some wonderful alcoholics, um, and they would almost to a person uh, within a week after this incredible breakthrough, and they would love and they would feel acceptance, and they would feel that they're finally reconnected with the world, and they'd go out and drink. Hmm. They'd come back to us and say, what did you do to me? We'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> they said, I didn't like the feeling I had on alcohol. So they didn't, you know, stop drinking like at an AA meeting. They stopped drinking because it made no sense. Hmm. It's interesting that you say that because I had a very similar thing that happened to me after like having this ayahuasca experience and after I did drink alcohol, it just it wasn't the same. I was just too aware of like all the damage it was doing to my body and kind of using it as an escape and all this kind of stuff. And yes, yeah, it's interesting you're saying that because so exactly that's what happened to me. We discovered that in the 60s. Um, and <laughs> we, what we also realized is that if you didn't have that mystical breakthrough, then you might stop drinking, but it was more like a psychotherapeutic event. Hmm. So, uh, because you were still inside your personality. Yeah. Um, I later developed, as we may talk about, transpersonal psychology, and the word was to mean through or beyond the personality. Now, conventional psychology, now that we've had transpersonal for 50 years, conventional psychology still doesn't like us. Why is that? <laughs> because they're trying to be a science, right. okay? You find them called the science of psychology, psychological science. You see them, um, and if you read psychological journals, um, and you don't read English very well, they look just like a chemistry journal or a physics journal, and that's on purpose, because they're saying, we're a science. <laughs> and there's real scientists say, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you measure mind? <laughs> uh, what is consciousness and, and what units do you use? And we say, well, 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 well. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they do little experiments, um, you know, like it turns out that if you have someone come into a classroom and they talk about something that's slightly controversial and they're introduced as um, this is a college sophomores and you say this is a college senior and he's going to talk about this and then you have the same person talk to a, a similar class only he's introduced as a second year graduate student mm. and you have him again and he's introduced as a professor um, and then he's introduced as the world expert in this area okay yeah he gives the same talk they are then asked how they feel about the particular area that he's talking about and the higher he's ranked, the more they agree with his point of view. Hmm. So that's cool. That's just kind of a fun study. And then you think, well, it's also common sense. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's psychology when it's doing a good job. But when you're trying to look at the question of how is it that a Tibetan who a Tibetan Lama who sits when he's quite old, he sits and he calls his disciples and he say, I'm going to die. 
and we then were going to go into meditation. At the end of this meditation, I will have left my body. And then within a certain amount of time, what the disciples know is there's a cart looking around for the young person who he has put his old self into. Hmm. Not just reincarnation, it's kind of directed reincarnation. Whoa. And so they literally take with them a little bag of like his favorite book and his children, some children's toys he had and they with other toys that look identical yeah. and they go to they go to the villages and so forth and suddenly there this one four-year-old uh, kind of pushes all the toys aside just takes the Dalai Lama the prior Lama's favorite toy and takes the you know some spiritual book and says something like incredibly cool for a four-year-old and they say <laughs> You're back. Wow. <laughs> okay, so that's something that transpersonal studies. Hmm. Okay, because once you get over that, we're not supposed to quote. We don't believe in all that. Um, if you're a real scientist, what you do is you look at, you observe, and you look at the evidence. Exactly. If the evidence is different. Your theory. You're supposed to let go of your theory. Hmm. How we know in the history of science, it doesn't work that way. And the, the wonderful story is in quantum mechanics, where the, the guy who developed quantum mechanics was asked why his, how his theory is being accepted. He said it's being accepted one funeral at a time, <laughs> which next generation coming up yeah. weren't headed to the idea that quantum mechanics couldn't exist. So they were able to accept Max Planck's work and, and so forth and so on. And that's true in science in general. Um, so that was this, this distinction between the transpersonal and psychology, um, still exists, but it's because psychology keeps saying we're a science. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting way you put that. And it's just funny how sometimes science just seems to, um, resist new ideas and they don't want to, they don't even have the option of exploring a new subject because it just kind of goes well, against their paradigm. But if about it as a, a religion. Mm. I believe, and, and you ask people, do you believe in science? I believe in science. <laughs> How do why, What is science? Science is observation and replication. I believe in science. Well, how about um, telepathy? I don't believe in telepathy because <laughs> that's not science. <laughs> yeah, not yet, not yet. <laughs> Because, no, no, because this, just as if you say to Christianity something about what Buddha does, they say, we, you know, that's just not in the system. Right. Yeah. So science has a system that we, that, and, and it's a wonderful, powerful system. I mean, you and I are now looking at each other, um, you know, 15 hours and <laughs> yeah. 12 miles yeah. away. Um, and shamans can't do that. No. They can't. <laughs> That's true. Exactly. It, it has its place. Hundred percent. I, I I agree with that for sure. And like in terms of like you know we're, we're talking about science resisting new ideas and stuff like that. How was the day when psychedelics was prohibited? Like how did that not only affect your personal life and the impact of your journey, but just psychedelics in general? Like how was that time? Well. You have to take one step back, which is not generally, it may be more and more generally known, is the, the prohibition against both, both marijuana, heroin, psychedelics, was had nothing to do 
with anything medical, scientific, clinical, or anything else. It was a political way that the Nixon administration in the United States could easily attack groups of hippies, war resistors, and blacks. Hmm. Because you could always search them for drugs. And you could arrest them on no evidence, so forth and so on. So this was a political act. But the science community didn't quite understand that because, of course, they were lied to. So they then developed a whole lot of theories of why psychedelics are so dangerous they should be illegal. Mm. Remember, marijuana was illegal um, from 1937, and that's a whole other set of non-science stories. Mm -hmm. um, so when it happened, we were all very surprised. And um, in, in a book that I've written, there's a little anecdote where we're doing whole new kind of research, which was we're not doing clinical, we're not doing spiritual, we're doing creative problem solving, which means we have brought into our little living rooms um, senior scientists, and we're told them they're going to have a creative day. And we've told them the only, the entrance, the, the way you can get into this study is you have to have been working on a problem for several months and failing. Mm. And these are, these are people with very little failure in their lives. So they were emotionally connected to the problem. They, they had the smarts. They were being paid to do this kind of problem. They had the, the, probably the information. And they had been against their own stone wall. So they were really interested in solving their problem. Hmm. And so we saw them the evening before. We gave them some unimportant psychological tests because we were science <laughs> tests of quote, creativity and flexibility um, and then they came in as a little group and we gave them about a hundred the equivalent of a hundred micrograms of LSD yeah. and for, for some of your more sophisticated audience about 200 uh, milligrams of mescaline depending on what we were using right okay and eye shades and music for a couple of hours and then we brought them up and wasted about 30 minutes giving them the tests again. And then they could work on their problems. And they had brought with them um, basically, you know, notebooks or big sketch pads. Um, we told them, now remember we're going back in time now, no slide rules. <laughs> so, no, 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 no iPhone with your computer in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was a, a, a thinking piece, not a kind of doing the, the numbers. And the range of problems was from uh, graphic design, architecture, um, illumina. These were people hired by various companies. So we had circuit design, chip design. Um, we had someone who did a wonderful breakthrough on the nature of the photon. Um, and that was published. And out of it came products and patents and publications. Yeah. And we had about 48 problems and there were like 44 solutions. So, and, and at the end of the first evening, because this we didn't know if this would work, because we all knew that you took psychedelics and you tripped. And and if someone said, well, why don't you look at what you earn for, do for a living? You say, I don't do anything for a living. I am living, etc. cetera. <laughs> um, but they were really interested in their problems, and the dose was low enough so they weren't transing out of themselves. Um and at the end of the first night, when it was clearly wildly successful, 
um, the little staff was just ecstatic because it was genuinely an experiment. See, most studies, they kind of know what you're after and you, you kind of try and get the right group for you. You, you preload it so you'll win. Mm-hmm. This was a genuine surprise. And so by the time we were doing, I think, our seventh group of four people, um, we had people one of people would go back to their laboratories or their part of uh, academia and we were getting their colleagues now calling us up and wanting in so that's how you know that you're doing something right mm. and then as we had four people lying on the couch and on the cushions in this little living room we get a letter from the food and from the food and drug administration that says as a receipt of this letter your experimental exemption to use psychedelics has been canceled. There we go. There's these four guys. And I was the very much the youngest member of the group. And I remember looking around and saying, I think we got this letter tomorrow. So we agreed on that. And the letter went to the door. We worked with our people and that ended the research, it ended the clinical work, it ended the work of this foundation. Um, and there I was, a year out of graduate school, my own, my, all my publications were psychedelic. And it was, it was as if, imagine that I had a bunch of publications on the benefits of torturing children. Okay? And you'd say, I don't think we want to hire him. <laughs> okay? So, there I was. And uh, I managed to put together a career ever since. Yeah. What did, what did you do since then? Well, I was a professor at three different, well, at, at th- uh, two colleges or two universities. Um, I was a consultant to companies like IBM and uh, computer companies and um, nursing homes. <laughs> uh Foster's Freeze, which I don't think we have anymore, but it's basically the soft ice (laughs) franchises. Um, I wrote books. I I taught not only in psychology, but in design engineering, which was really fun because I'd never had an engineering course. Uh, But uh, but it was okay because I only taught graduate students. Yeah, (laughs) that's all right then. (laughs) And at one point... um, a friend and I developed the idea of a, what if we had a real education, you know, with this transpersonal point of view. And so we imagined what such a school might be. And I'd gone to a, a, a kind of five-star school, and so did he. So we knew what the best that America could offer, and we both agreed it was, it was not inferior. It was very limited. It's kind of as if you um, went to bodybuilding, and they said, we only are going to work on your arms. Right, okay. It's good, but it's not. There's more. Yeah, it could be better. Yeah. We made, uh, as we were writing a textbook, um, we made a little, um, a little kind of three-page outline of what a real education might be, and then there was a little newsletter, a transpersonal psychology newsletter, maybe two hundred copies, and so our little fantasy went into there, and then a few weeks later, a letter came and said, "Where's the school?" And other letters came and said, where's the school? And at this point, my colleague, Bob Frazier, who had a, uh, a really wonderful job at the University of California at Santa Cruz by the ocean, 
and had a, a he was in the religion department he was in the psychology department he was running a wildly popular aikido club and he was up for tenure now you have to understand a little bit about the university system the religion people said well he really is in psychology we can't give him tenure and the psychology people says really in religion we can't give him tenure <laughs> and so so on the one hand um, bob was losing his job had a wife and child. On the other hand, people said, where's the school? So we said, okay, let's make out of thin air a four-year to five-year graduate program in transpersonal psychology. Now, we didn't know what that was, of course, because we'd never done that, and no one else had. Um, so we said to the students, we're working on it. And they showed up. They showed up. We had no curriculum. We had no faculty except each other. And the week before they arrived, we lost our campus. Hmm. So as Bob said, we, we started the school on $500. And then he pauses as he tells the story and it says, I loaned it to us. <laughs> now, the, the beyond dumb of that story <laughs> Uh, is hard to fathom. However, the students were there, and we then said, well, what do you want to learn? And so we, we basically developed a curriculum based on student need. We all knew a lot of people. They would come in, teach a class, and we'd say to the students, how long do you want this class to be, etc. And we ended up as a campus, as the downstairs of a home, recently divorced woman, and she needed to just keep the home. She lived upstairs, so we had a kitchen, a bathroom, a living room. Now, this is California, and a hot tub. Hmm. Of course. <laughs> so it, that's, that transpersonalized us. <laughs> and we had spiritual teachers, mainly ones that Bob knew, really very distinguished spiritual teachers who came in and taught. Um, and we began to develop a curriculum. And a year or two later, we ended up in a magnificent campus um, owned by a Catholic order. Um, kind of a retreat center that had a part that they weren't using. Um, and we developed the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which um, became actually very well known worldwide, and transpersonal psychology continued to expand. Now, within that, psychedelics had a place, but just a place. Yeah. Because we were really, and our students became clinicians, became professors, became business people. Um, one of my favorite early dissertations was running a restaurant transpersonal. Now, one of the problems in restaurants is you have a huge high turnover of people. Right. Because you pay lousy and the work's not much fun and so forth. And there's no career. So, uh, but we had one of our students who had a friend that said, if you will run a restaurant, I'll, I will fund it. So he spent a summer doing every job in a restaurant, including... Uh, being the delivery truck that's in the food. And he set up a restaurant in Florida, a fish restaurant. And within the first year, his his turnover rate, instead of being 50%, was 5%. The restaurant was successful. And a year later, he was asked by the local college, would he teach a management course? So this was what felt was a very healthy transpersonal education. Yeah, that sounds, that's awesome.
Um, I'll, I'd love to, well, just before we continue the transpersonal stuff and the different cells, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about uh, microdosing and just like what are your thoughts on that and how is that, what's the difference between microdosing and having a normal trip, you know? I've been now doing microdosing for so long that I think microdosing is normal. Everything else is a high-dose trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. It's, it's kind of, the way I look at it is I think... Uh, if there is a divinity who is somewhat personal, he has a he or she has a must be a she has a great sense of humor. Because I, I devoted my you know my life and gave up a conventional career and so forth because of high dose mystical experience. So what do I end up doing? Is working not with four hundred mics but with maybe eight. <laughs> wow. So I became interested in microdosing because someone told me about it and I was curious. And I kept following that curiosity, and it turns out that microdosing is a totally different world. The one thing that you can say about microdosing, even before all the double-line control studies are over, is it has nothing to do with the psychedelic experience. Hmm. No visions, no grand breakthroughs, um, no being eaten by snakes, no being torn apart by, by either demons or angels. Um, no revelations of, of, of knowing everything that Dante knew in an instant. And no incredible insights about when you were reborn five lifetimes ago and was a rabbi in Russia and was a mean person and you <laughs> vowed on your death not to be... None of that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Microdosing, if done right, is you think, gee, I'm having a pretty good day. I got some nice stuff done. There were things that I had actually been putting off that I, I'm done. Um, I noticed I, I ate a little healthy lunch. And I was nice to that person who I usually wish would go away. And I forgot I took anything. Hmm. That's a microdose. Now, a lot of people in, in our world think, well, a microdose is a little high. It's not a big high, but it's a little high. It's kind of like it's not 151 proof rum, but it's a at least it's a shot of phosphorus. Right. You're still feeling a little bit of a buzz. Maybe you, you see some exactly. slight distortions or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The flowers at least lean in on you. <laughs> exactly. Right. What we've told people is if you feel a little bit high, all that says is your dose is too much. What we found in the couple of thousand people who, who have... Um, participated really as, as, as kind of um, self-observant subjects, is many, many have said, gee, 10 micrograms, which you said was a microdose, is a little high. So I've, I've gone down to eight or seven, okay. maybe. And so we've, and, and a very, very few people have said 10 isn't enough, I do 15. Mm. So a microdose is really a very small amount. And what it, what it seems to do is make your system work better, more effectively. Um, systems seem to come into balance. Mm. We have two, two major groups, people who basically have depression and people who um, are doing fine. Right. Those are our groups. And the people who are doing fine, basically they say, I'm not higher creative, but I'm longer creative. They're mm. flow longer. Um, I'm, I have more fun with my kids, and as one person said, if it gets out what this does for libido, you've really got a drug here. 
And I, I don't think it actually raises libido, but it raises feeling good about who you're with. Right. Like amplifying the senses almost? A, a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, enough so that you say, ooh, that was... But it, but it isn't something you say, well, gee, sex without it isn't as good. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not an aphrodisiac, but it is a... Um, well, let me, let me be slightly technical. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's all good. Go for it. Antidepressant, assuming mm -hmm. it works, and we're not sure about that. Mm -hmm. It makes your awful feelings less strong. Mm -hmm. And the reason that people don't like antidepressants is they say, "Yeah, it makes my awful feelings less strong. I feel numb." And it turns out, if you take a microdose every couple of days, not every day. Not your your negative feelings are less, but also your positive feelings are more, mm. and it's a totally different experience. So that it isn't with my, with antidepressants you feel less bad. Mm -hmm. With microdosing, as the hundreds of reports we've got say, I not only feel less bad, but I feel more good. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're. So as um, a friend of mine who was a student many, many years ago, he wrote me recently, and after six months of microdosing, he was on two antidepressants, strong, mm -hmm. and he come off them. He said, after 31 years, I am off antidepressants. Wow. And what he said was, and I have much more feelings. He says, I kind of embarrass people now because I cry at good things and at bad things uh, in a way that... I was not able to do before. Yeah. More human, <laughs> sounds like it. A lot of people have said, I just feel more like, I people have said, gee, for the first time in years, I feel like myself. Hmm. That's interesting, because I haven't had too much uh, experience with microdosing, only psilocybin mushrooms, but I found that psilocybin mushrooms is too unpredictable. Like the, 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 the amount of psilocybin is going to differ so much between each mushroom, so it's very hard to measure a good microdose and what happens oftentimes is that it just ends up being a very small trip instead of or nothing at all you know <laughs> so, well, be careful because nothing at all probably was nicer than you thought right uh, I, because you're so aware of tripping and um we had a wonderful guy who wrote and he said i'm an artist and i'm cool and i have lots of psychedelic experience and i took microdosing and it had no effect at all hmm. and I wrote back and said you know that's too bad it happens to people um was there anything at all that you noticed about your day? Not about the trip. And then he wrote back, he said, you know, I really actually got a, a lot of work done. And then he had a whole list of things that had worked well during the day. But what he said is, I didn't feel any, any buzz. So wow. it couldn't have been psychedelic. Uh, so my guess is that your lower dose days were fine and your upper dose days were... Uh, and, and you and you recognize the problem. Here's here's the problem we get, which is we all know that most of us here who are listening and watching <laughs> figure well, if ten is good, twenty is probably better. <laughs> and the the one story I like because this is about normal life. This is not about taking the day off and going and lying in the field and watching the flowers grow. Of course, this yeah. is the, and this guy says so. 10 was really working and I really was loving what was happening. So I took 20 and I went into work and we had a sales meeting and I'm sitting in the sales meeting and I think, I don't care about this product. 
<laughs> yeah. I don't, and I don't really like sales. And then he very wisely went home. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because your high self certainly isn't interested in um, whether we can pick up the numbers and, you know, sell 15% more in Brisbane next month by putting another ad, okay? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But whose trip is interested in. Yeah. Well, it's, but, it, yeah. Sorry. Continue. You know, that's basically basically that's that's why the microdose. You know, I keep mentioning it because the microdose is different. It the the problem with microdosing is they happen to be psychedelics. Yeah. <laughs> happen to be so so it's hard not to say. See, most pharmaceuticals. So let's take aspirin. You have a headache. You take an aspirin. It doesn't quite work. You take another. And you know that if you took four aspirin, it'd be twice as much of the same effect. Right. And if eight, it would be a lot. About around thirty, you get sick. But okay. And so you think, well, a psychedelic should have an effect, and then more of it will have more of the same effect. No. <laughs> they're more like uh, they're radios with different bands: shortwave and international, and AM and FM. And it's more like that. So that at the bottom end is microdosing. Hmm. There, there's also, and then you get, say, to a concert dose, around 50 micrograms. And and when I say to people, concert dose, if they don't know what I'm talking about, I say, you know why at concerts there's that huge, incredible light show? <laughs> they say, oh, yeah. Of course. It all makes sense, of course. <laughs> yeah. Right. Otherwise, it's just irritating if you want to listen to music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. And, and then when we're up into the 50 to 100, we're talking um, psychotherapeutic, up to, that you you can really do a lot of very powerful therapy in a short period of time. And 200, you're still in the therapy world. And then from 200 up, you're starting to lose interest in your personality. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, a, a friend of mine talked about a fairly high dose, and she said, I found myself walking along kind of a boardwalk with beautiful things on all sides. And I felt so wonderful. And I looked behind me and there were all my problems. Hmm. And they were like little beings, like like little living schmooze or beanie bags or something, uh, kind of animated little things. And she realized that if she just kept walking, they would stay behind. And I said, what'd you do? She said, well, I went back and picked up a few. <laughs> Some that's, of the, some of the road. <laughs> that's beyond therapeutic. Right. Okay. That's that's from a different perspective. So microdosing works the other end. And and the thing also about microdosing is because we're so used to uh, psychedelics only affecting mind, mm. um, microdoses actually affect your whole system. Because if you think about it, when you take a mushroom, it doesn't like go from here up into your head. No, it goes into every cell of your body. Everywhere, like every That's true. It's a very physical experience as well as like mentally as yeah. well. Yeah. If you look at the number of neurons here, and that's where all those beautiful pictures we all love of boring gray body without LSD and cool light show head brain with you have more neurons in your gut than you have in your head. Yeah. But since we can't measure those, and this is where science. See, it's hard because they can't measure them. They don't talk about it. Mm, right. 
but for example, um, well, here, here's the way, see, here's the way, what, I don't do research, I do search, which means I discover stuff. And how do I discover stuff is I ask other people to look inside themselves and tell me something interesting. So I, some years ago, I got a letter from a young woman in London, art historian, um, and she said, I know I owe you a report. She'd been at a conference. I'd asked people to participate. She said, but I thought this might interest you. While I was on my one month of microdosing, I had my period, which has always been painful and crampy. It wasn't. Hmm. So I wrote back. Um, I didn't say what was first in my mind is I don't care about your report, <laughs> but I'm, I'm blown away by what you just said. So I said, well, uh, what were you taking and how much was the dose and uh, what are you doing every month? She wrote me back and she said, I only microdose that one month. Hmm. My periods are now normal. They've never been normal in her life. My periods are now normal. You have changed my life. Thank you. Wow. And it, that's it, that even though she stopped taking, uh, she yeah. stopped microdosing and it just had a permanent shift. Wow. Because if you think about it, and we don't know much about it, you and I, yeah. but during the period, hormones are shifting. And if they shift correctly in the right order, in the right timing, in the right amount, it's called a normal period. And mm. if they don't shift, it's emotionally or physically very difficult. So now I had what, what see, for in, in biology or botany, if you find one of anything, it counts. Mm. You don't need to have, you know, enough to make a study. No. So here, person. So um, my partner, Sophia Korb, and I kind of let the news out that we had one case. Um, and so we now have eight or ten cases. And what we did is, or Sophia did, is she went and found somebody who was a scientist in the realm of menstrual concerns and said, here's this data. Why don't you think about it and do a study? Hmm. That's, that's our model, which is we find something and then we give it to the right people. Okay. But, the but the physical changes are, some of them, quite startling. Um, another is migraine headaches. Migraine headaches are caused by something or other. They're, I used to know the theory, but I've been told that that theory went away. Okay. But people who have migraine headaches, they're very awful to have. And they have usually, they don't have one. They have a lot. And it turns out that a lot of people who have microdosed report not that they have no migraines, but they have less. So I got a, a note from someone who'd been microdosing a couple of months and had reported wonderful migraine changes. And she was the wife of a holistic physician. What that means is she tried everything. Of course. And she said, I had a migraine Two weeks ago, it lasted 36 hours. And I went, oh. And I wrote a little email, oh. <laughs> I was a little more words than that. Yeah. And she, she wrote back and she said, hey, don't worry. I used to get 20 of them a month. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. that's an area of that hasn't been explored. And, and if you look in the psychedelic literature, and there's literally thousands of papers, there's nothing about migraines or periods. Hmm. Um, because also, if you're only, you know, if you trip hard, you don't then do that three days later. 
No, definitely not. <laughs> one, one is that's dumb if you want to get any benefit, and two is your body says, um, "I'm not even going to give you an experience if you do that." Yeah, it's what what we call tolerance or anti-addictive um, part of psych of high dose. Yeah, and with my yeah, with microdosing, you do it only every couple of days, and nobody there's no tolerance problem. Yeah, yeah, it's all interesting. You're talking about those like you can't. It's very difficult to trip just a couple of days after having a very heavy experience. And I did want to talk to you about like challenging trips and overcoming it. But just before we go into that, I'd love to know your opinion on on microdosing. Like, what class of substance would you even compare it to, if you could at all? Like, you know, is it would you compare it to an antidepressant, a nootropic, like, or is it just its own thing that we have no idea about? Psychedelic or microdosing? Microdosing specifically, yeah. I mean, the problem is that what medicine tries to do is tight focus. They love a medication that has as small a compass as possible um, and that doesn't last long. Because mm. the ideal medicine is something that you have to take for the rest of your life. And, with, and it so happens with, with a lot of these psychological medications, they don't work very well. Um, Antidepressants were developed for people with severe depression. They do okay there. They don't work well with what we would call the depression that we all have when we see what's happening to the world. Yes. That's yeah. um, when you look at the forest fire and you get that's the worst forest fire that we've ever had in this part of Australia. Yeah. And we know that it ain't the worst one we're going to have. Yeah. It's a kind of depression uh, that antidepressants don't help. Right. More of a so, despair uh, almost, like that kind of, that realm. Ex say, quote, existential despair. I never know what, what's the difference with that and plain old despair. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's, despair is perhaps more personal. <laughs> maybe it sounds more, more intense because I, I even tend to use that, like existential despair. Maybe it's relating to just humanity as a whole. So maybe it is a, yeah. It's not that my girlfriend just, walked out on me it's that everyone on earth's girlfriend walked out on me. exactly exactly <laughs> so it may be that microdoses really are a class of drugs actually closer to vitamins huh. see if you think about it, vitamins when you take a vitamin you don't take a vitamin uh because your knee hurts you take a vitamin because it helps the whole system work correctly mm. So microdoses seem to be more of that class because they seem to correct imbalances. If you're depressed, that's an imbalance. Either it's psychological imbalance or it's probably biochemical imbalance and they work together. Um, if you have a, a period, it's your hormones. If you have a migraine, it may be something about blood flow. Hmm. So um, if, you're, if you have chronic pain, now... Most of the time, most of the people who write us and ask about chronic pain, what we say is on a pain scale, you know, if your pain is an eight and you're just miserable, with microdosing, your pain will probably be an eight, but you will be less miserable. Hmm. Um, so, we have, so we have these odd cases. Now we have one case of someone with incredible pain who also smokes marijuana, grows his own, and he says, on a day without a microdose, my pain is a tingle. 
with a microdose, without a microdose, it's excruciating. Wow. And this is this is someone who's had who has two broken places in his back, and they couldn't be operated on because if the operation failed, he'd never move again. Ooh. So he opted. Um, but he's so his for him it was an enormous pain control. But but again. That's where the the medical sciences should come in and take a look. Right, yeah, we need to do more searching, as you say. So, uh, chronic things like Parkinson's, again, people feel better, but they may, may not necessarily have better symptoms. Right. And, and would you? what's your opinion on uh, microdosing different substances, let's say like LSD versus mushrooms? Is there a difference in that on the no. microdose level? Um we ask people to just give us lots and lots of data for a month because people tend to lose interest in being helpful. <laughs> because it's not that interesting to just check off, you know, how your emotions are. Yeah. Um, we can't distinguish between any of the classic psychedelics. Okay. That's that's LSD, psilocybin, um, peyote, um, San Pedro. Now, ayahuasca is a little different, and MDMA in our world is not a psychedelic. Right. It's just different. Yeah. And, and we're not studying it, so we don't, when people say, I want to talk about, I'm going to take MDMA, we say, fine, but don't write us. Yeah. Okay, so, however, recently I was talking to someone who um, has become an expert mushroom um, grower. Okay. And he said in his town, which is not the Bay Area, um, his microdosing friends say after about six months, LSD really is different than psilocybin. And that LSD is more um, kind of clear thinking and psilocybin is more emotionally feeling good. Hmm. And pass that on because that's all I know. Okay. Uh, but what we know in terms of the major health questions and the major creativity questions that they're pretty interchangeable because a lot of people basically say, you know, I take what's around. And if you go to our website, which is called microdosingpsychedelics.com, one word, psychedelics, <laughs> it has a kind of list of doses and there's a range. And so we used to have 10 micrograms for LSD. We now have like seven to 13. Okay. And for mushrooms, it's 0.1 gram to 0.4 grams. Um, because individual mushrooms, if you take two mushrooms from the same uh, species, they'll be different. Yeah, I can confirm. But, but basically, 0.1 to 0.4 seems to be the range. Right. Um, and so for some other substances. Yeah, and then that would be like, I, I would assume, just a standard psilocybin cubensis mushroom. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But it could be a golden teacher, and it could be, you know, penis envy, that wonderful <laughs> term. <laughs> awesome. Um, and there's more and more. Remember, there's there's not only 100 species, but there are people playing with mushrooms, you know, trying to do genetic games. So there's all kinds of interesting things. Oh, happen. yeah. And a lot of species that we haven't even discovered yet. So there's a lot there to explore, right. for sure. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, challenging trips, because uh, I think it was a while ago when we were emailing back and forth I was going through a very heavy uh, existential yep. crisis, and it was I, I kind of got turned off psychedelics. I was like, never, I'm never tripping again. This was too much. I went to the, I guess, the collective suffering of humanity and living in. Yes. I, I was living in a in a state of grief, as if like 
my whole family, all my friends died. Like that sinking feeling, it, it lasted for a long time, and I was just so, I was just sad all the time. I was just like, how, why, how is life worth living if this is like, if it's if suffering is so intense like this? And the reason I bring this up because whilst you're in that hole, it can be very difficult to go through it and not see for, uh, foresight. But I found now, obviously, it's almost, well, more than two years have passed, and I've found it to be probably the most spiritually significant experience of my life. But that doesn't mean it that was, it was it was f- grueling. It was fucking grueling. Well, yeah. Here's, here's the kind of curious thing, and yeah. you're actually a perfect model. Also, thank you for using challenging, not bad, because <laughs> we need to make that trip, because the point is what we're, I think, we're taking psychedelics for the benefits, hmm. not for the trip. That's, yeah, true. Okay? It's kind of like if I want to go to Paris, I want to go, to, I want to be in Paris. Now, I'm going to have to trip to get there. Hmm. And I don't really like the trip, or I might like the trip. Okay? <laughs> Either way, I'm, my goal is getting there and getting some benefit from being there. Uh, John Hopkins did a survey sent out to a zillion people. And the questionnaire was, we're asking about your best trip. And it was about a 45-minute questionnaire, lots of questions, lots of... And they found out that um, people felt that their best trip in, you know, like 90% of the time was really important in their lives and beneficial. Mm. They then did a questionnaire on your worst trip. And they found that about 80% of people felt it was the most important beneficial trip they'd ever had. Mm. So it's very much your story. Now, in my world, I would rather not have that opportunity of having a truly dreadful experience. But the other thing is you probably didn't have much help in integrating. No. In fact, you might have not told anyone because you were so sad. Yeah. Well, like I did talk to some coaches, some therapists. Like I did definitely – I talked to some people who – at least sort of knew where I was coming from, but most people had no idea on that level. Because, like, I've talked to a lot of people who've had horrific trips, but that was, like, you know, on the level of maybe demons shredding them up and having a horrible psychosis trip. And I've even had those trips, but the the trip that I had was specifically, like, that that existential dread and despair and that, I don't know, it changed my perspective afterwards. So when I came back from the trip, I was it changed my mindset and that was the terrifying part because I've had bad trips, but sorry, challenging trips, but at least once I get back to earth, it's like, Oh, that's over. Oof, I'm back to reality. I'm, I'm good now. This wasn't the case. Yeah. Well, you, you tapped into, as you described it, there is this, there is a, a kind of band of universal grief mm. and it's terrible. Mm. I mean, uh, there's also another band. I'm thinking of a Ram Dass story which is uh, Ram Dass is in India, and he's told to uh, to do oming, om, for 24 hours. Okay. And so he's really this, always, if you read Ram Dass, he's like this perfect student. So he says, okay. So he's oming away, and then he begins to hear oming inside himself. It isn't his. And then he, that goes on along with his oming, and he then asks his teacher, and his teacher says, oh, yeah, that's the people through time who've been doing this practice. Hmm. So this, this place on the, you know, on the psychedelic FM band called OM. <laughs> Turn in, that's where the OMs are. Right? It's, 
It's kind of like if you want, you know, a punk rock, there's a place, you know, there's going to be punk rock 24 hours a day. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so you tapped into a very sad part of humanity that we all skirt around the edge of. And then there are people um, are just listening to someone who's who's been working for the last uh, 18 months trying to, to determine the number of people killed by um, the U.S. bombing of a city called Raqqa in Syria. Now, I cannot imagine what her mind is like to be able to do that. And, you know, seeing that we can, here's a picture of a dismembered arm and here's another arm that's probably the same body. I mean, not my, my, not my capacity. Mm. Uh, but there are people who can who can handle that band, and thank God there are. Um, my feeling is that you get as much benefit from bliss as from sorrow, mm. um, and that's prob that may be my personal weakness. But I would never say to someone, um, I would never say to someone, I'm going to give you sorrow when I could give you bliss. That's yeah. just. It's true because I think it was my mentality of like, I think unconsciously I was even almost asking for it. And even like as a child, I was always sort of like attracted to that dark, the darkness side. And now that uh, it helped me, I don't know, ever since that trip, I'm like, no, I don't need to go there anymore. And I haven't had a, a, like a, an intense trip then. I'm just actually, I'm genuinely happy just being a human, being normal and just like still normal things. Like, and I never... I was never at that place throughout the majority of my life. I was always chasing like mystical experiences or like intense experiences, you know. So that was definitely my part, and I agree with you. You don't have to go through the deepest, darkest corridors of sorrow to learn something profound. You can get just as much from bliss. So yeah, I I agree. And, and the, we're aiming somewhere in between because we can't function on either. Um, yeah, I'm sorry that you had that, and I'm glad that you benefited. And there are people who have terrible trips and probably don't benefit because, I mean, the new buzzword here uh, is integration. Yes, yes. And integration is saying, um, bring, you know, whatever you bring back, let's let's look at that. Mm. And if I think about it, shamans, one of the things that you do as a shaman is you go to the upper or the lower world, and one of the things you bring back is information, healing, what plant to use, uh, what ikaros, what song to sing, etc. And that you get that from this other dimension and you bring it back. And that's what your job is. Mm. And that, that actually helped me uh, become more at peace with what I went through is that now I've had so many people reaching out to me who've had the very similar thing. And it's like, oh, thank God, like, you know, you, you gave me hope to know that you've yeah. gone through this even worse than what I've gone through and you've come out the other side. So in that aspect, I am very happy for that, but it was still a <laughs> brutal experience. I I'm good now. It took like about, I would say 18 months for me to like think back on that experience and not feel like negative emotions, you know? So it took a while. Well, yeah. Which is when you think back on it, you're in it. Mm. And that's why it's so terrible. Mm. It's not that you've done terrible things, uh, but that you can't move them from immediacy into memory. Mm. That's the beautiful thing about the MDMA work, 
remember, MDMA, you don't ever lose your personality. But you're there because your personality is in serious trouble. And what happens is you can go to the places that always make you upset. And during the MDMA time, you're not upset. Mm. There's still things. Remember, I mean, you've been in a tank because we have all these soldiers come back. You've been in a tank and or in a, a, a vehicle and you're driving and you have a superior officer and there are children playing in the road in front of you. And you start to slow down and he says, go you know, keep going. It might be a, a mine. It might be a, a, a bomb. So you kill the children. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, you know, our wiring is such that that's about the worst thing you can do in your whole life. And every time you even kind of think road or child, you go into that place where you did that terrible thing. And then you take MDMA and you go to that place and you did that terrible thing, but you know that it kind of wasn't your fault and it happened a while ago and that you're trying to make your life kind of as a, a way of, of getting, you know, kind of giving back what you took away. Mm. And then, so you don't lose that you did a terrible thing. It's not denial or repression, but it's putting it from a forefront where you can't think of anything else to memory. Right. And that's, that's the brilliance of MDMA therapy. Mm. Like it helps you lose that emotional charge to it. Yeah. Well, you um, actually, yeah. You actually move it probably from the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that stores immediate high energy, high emotional issues, yeah. to memory. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good thing. And because um, well, just uh, finishing up on overcoming challenging trips, because I've noticed that not necessarily everyone recovers from uh, like a traumatic psychedelic experience uh did you have do you have any advice for people who are maybe struggling who have ptsd from a psychedelic trip and any practical steps in overcoming that well there are now more and more therapists who will talk to you who actually because they've also tripped you know are are, can be much more helpful yes Uh, and, and part of it is also uh, exploring it without, you know, kind of going to the edges of the pool. And I mean, how do you get over, uh, as a child, I almost drowned when I was, I don't know, five or six. Okay. Now, I was immediately, it was suggested that I don't go swimming. I didn't know how to swim. So, um, but it was not suggested I don't approach water. But that I don't go in the deep end. Mm. So that I went to the edges of water, and then you know the edges were safe, and then this was safe, and this was safe, and this was safe, and so forth. Um, so there, um, the thing is, I think most therapists, if they know how to listen rather than to talk, can do a wonderful job, because if you really listen and you're okay, you, the therapist, are not frightened by what you're hearing, then there's one person in the room that isn't upset, and. As we know in psychedelics, there's actually kind of one person in the room. Um, I had a, a friend in Norway, and he was a therapist, and he got a lot of referrals from the court. So he had some people that didn't want they didn't want to be there, and they didn't like therapy. And he was, you know, there he was. I said, "How do you deal with them?" He said, "Before they come in, I meditate until I'm not concerned about 
their crime or their illness or their pathology or their being don't want to be there. They're just a being and I'm a being and then I enter the room. Hmm. And the person who is disturbed and pissed off and uh, whatever it is, suddenly this person there has no resistance. And uh, if you know a little bit about martial arts, martial arts are the act of allowing the other person to fall down. Or the art that I know, which is Aikido. Yeah, which yeah. Is, there's no aggressive moves in Aikido. You're just there. And if someone moves towards you, by definition, they're off balance. Hmm. Interesting. So you, you help them by adding to their off balance and they fall down. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So the kind of acceptance, you know, that story I told you of running over and killing children, it's very hard to say that if you're the person who did it without the person that you're talking to being a little freaked out because mm. it's so horrible. And so the therapist is one that, that knows how to work on themselves not to get caught in the, in the pathology once it's kind of, you know, the cage is open and the pathology is running around. There's a, a Sufi story of Nasser Dean and a, a woman comes to him and um, says that, that he's got a sugar addiction and I, I want you to take him out of it. And he, he thinks about that. The child comes in and he screams at the child, if you eat sugar, and he screams and his eyes flame and he's just... And the child runs out of the room, and then Astrodine runs out of the room too. Hmm. Mother doesn't know what's going on, and, and uh, comes back in, and she says, "I understand that you've tried to frighten my child, and might help, but why did you run out of the room?" He says, "Madam, when fear appears, we are all afraid." <laughs> wow! Yeah. So it's, so it's important to talk to someone who can hold that space. Of exactly. What, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. It's such a beautiful. It's not even a metaphor. You're literally holding the space, and they're kind of ragged about the space. And the, the, the people at Burning Man who run the Zendo where you go if you're upset, they have this great sentence. They say, we never bring anyone down. We bring them through. Hmm. Wow. So when it comes in, as you did with your grief, basically you hadn't finished the trip. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically a, a many-month-long trip, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that's advice, but that's comment. Yeah, no, no, it, it is useful. <laughs> I think it's important to uh, at least talk to someone, but someone that can hold space and can somewhat understand. Because I, I was afraid to just go to just – couldn't go to a doctor or just some random right. therapist because they would have absolutely no idea what – I've actually experienced, and then I would feel more alone, and I might even feel worse afterwards. And that oh, that's part true. Of it. But as, as you know, just as if you actually look at the just the number of people that that, that look at your podcast, mm. it's going up. Okay. Now you can say, well, that's because I'm so cool and I'm so much more interesting, and my guests are even not really. <laughs> yeah, my guests right. are, but not me. Yeah. <laughs> what you know is that you're talking about something that more and more people are interested in and have experience in and so forth. I mean, the thing that, that I get blown away with is um, how many people have really had psychedelics? Okay, Now, I know the American figures, which is since psychedelics were made illegal, 30 million Americans have had LSD. That's just LSD. That's a lot, yeah. 
Now, and also if we run it kind of on an educational scale, most of those were the more educated half of the population. Hmm. So that if I go to, I don't know, a meeting of chiropractors or of hedge fund managers and I do what I do, which is I have, I've got an inverse way of getting people to say if they've used psychedelics. <laughs> or I, say, I say, who here has not had a major psychedelic experience? If you haven't had one, you know, it's cool. But immediately I can see who didn't raise their hand. Okay. And I go to a group now, and if I ask that, not have an awful lot of people not raise their hands. Hmm. So that, uh, and that's, see, you think about it. If you want to be a psychotherapist, are you interested in consciousness? Yes. Are you interested in your consciousness? Enormously. Is it likely that you've been offered psychedelics? Yes. See, 20 years ago, the answer was, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. And then it now that and now that I understand, you can get DMT off of gum trees. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I don't know if this is true, but from what I heard, I think Australia has like the highest DMT-rich environment in the world. So yeah, it's everywhere. Since Mexico has the most different kinds of psychedelics. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, that was um, really awesome. Like really good um, advice. So I'd like to just finish this off and talk about the different personality styles because this is the stuff that like all of this fascinates me but this particularly is very fascinating because my my girlfriend's last mushroom trip she literally went in a room in her psyche and there was like all these chairs and all these different personality styles waiting for her and they were all personality types that like in very specific situations like for example she would have a personality that tells her Hey, slow down. You're going to, you know, don't drive so fast. You might, you might kill someone or something like Just very specific personalities like that. And it just, well, yeah. And reading it, your book, it just totally reminded okay, me of that. So let me frame it, which is, um, it seems to me, I'll just start with the kind of the assumption. It seems to me that healthy human beings have multiple selves because that's survival beneficial. Okay? Yeah. And then I'll just give you an example or two, which is, um, have you ever argued with yourself? All the time, yeah. <laughs> Who's that other person? Okay. I mean, simple, right? Have you ever said, I don't know what got into me? Have you ever said, um, you know the way I behaved last night, that just isn't the way I am, but I had, and then you mentioned drugs or alcohol or anger, right? Mm, yeah. I and one of my favorites is a, a metaphor in English. I was beside myself. Mm. I love that. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. So that's the notion. And the notion is that if you pay attention to that, it turns out that your life actually becomes more understandable. Because here's the problem we all have. You're in a relationship with your girlfriend. Yeah. And you really know her pretty well. And she's pretty consistent except when she's not. <laughs> yeah. And she's not consistent. You say, how could you have done that, you know, the last 40 times that you, and then this time, and she says, I don't know, okay? And then she says of you, what's the matter with you today? You say, I don't know, is there anything wrong? I'm still me. And I say, no, no, you're really behaving in a way that's very, very different. And if you think about it, we all... Uh, if you go home to your parents, 
You change. Okay. Now, what you don't know is they change. Mm. <laughs> because, um, and I had this, this really brought home to me. I was, I don't know, 50. I go home, I visit my mother. Now, this is Florida, um, kind of, you know, warm, humid. And we're going out and she says, uh, don't you think you should put on a sweater? Okay. And I think, I'm 50. I've actually, you know, I'm in here. She's in that body. And I know her circulation actually isn't that good. And i about to, you know, nail her. And then I get that, you know, that's my mom. Mm. But it's but it's irritating and it's demeaning. And I and I say to my stepfather, this is a not nice part of me. How do you live with her? Mm. And he says, she's only like that when you're around. Wow. And I suddenly got that I, of course, become much, you know, because when you're a parent, now that I have children, um, when you're a parent, when you see your child, they see themselves in the present. But you see behind them all these in terms of that. There's that little four-year-old girl who says, Daddy, I didn't know that was a bad word. This <laughs> <laughs> when my child at age four says to me something like, well, don't be a motherfucker. <laughs> that, what? That's hilarious. <laughs> but so, so we see cells behind, you know, just younger cells. So we, we behave differently with our parents than they do with us, so to speak. Yeah. And if you think about it, um, usually if creative people are much better at understanding this, which is I get into the space in which I can write poems. And if not in that space, I can't. Or I have to do my taxes. Most of me hates math, but I have to kind of put that aside and just be the little math scribbler and get out the receipts. And the, and I do that. And I say, oh, gee, that, was, that wasn't as bad because the part of you that did it was the one best equipped to do it. And yes. so the phrase, the phrase that, that I've used for mental health is being in the right self at the right time. Mm. Yeah. Which is because imagine you you come home and you are the self that visits your parents, and there's your girlfriend. Okay. You think I wouldn't have sex with anybody, <laughs> <laughs> and she thinks, "What's going on?" <laughs> okay, because you you've put the wrong self at the wrong time. And if you've ever had the feeling when two of your parts of your life come to you at the same time, you know, you're suddenly there's a surprise visit from a parent and a girlfriend that you're having trouble with. Mm. And you feel that, quote, I was torn apart. Okay. Wow. See, all these selves reacting. And what we've done, we actually have a book at the moment in press called Healthy Selves who you are and why you don't know it. And why you don't know it is we all were brought up to say, there's only one self. The monotheism is only one self. And people who have more than one self are really crazy sick people. Mm. Think about it. See, when I took abnormal psychology and you say, well, why would I want to be into all these weird sick things? And they say, well, all of the things we're talking about 
are kind of extreme versions of normal behavior. Hmm. Except multiplicity. That's different. That's just weird. And that way, you don't get to write the rules that way. Hmm. And so extreme multiplicity is fascinating. And I'll give you an example that, that very early on blew me away. This is someone who is in a hospital, so they're under observation, and they have, quote, multiple personalities. And one of the personalities is called uh, Timmy, and Timmy's about 11, and Timmy likes orange juice. And when Timmy drinks orange juice, he's very happy. But the other personalities in the same body are allergic to orange juice. So as long as Timmy is, quote, in control, the person we're talking to, there's no problem. But if one of the other personalities takes over and the other is older, there are hives that appear on the body. Hmm. Meaning a strong, strong allergic reaction to orange juice. And if Timmy returns to being the, the person that everyone is talking to, the hives go away. Okay? I mean, that to me is farther out than the Dalai Lama story. Okay? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay, so what it says is, that in different personalities, you can physically be somewhat different. And we have um, both EEG records of people who, whose EEGs in different moods, so to speak, different selves, are as different as different individuals. And there's also a wonderful way of, of, of for, for people who are strong multiples, they have more than one eyeglass prescription. Wow. That's crazy, yeah. Okay, so those are extremes which make it a little easier. But if you look at us and you say, um, hmm, somebody's coming over to the house that my girlfriend invited. I hate him. But that's really not going to make a good evening. No, no. So I'm just going to be, and then you turn out to be pretty nice. And, and you know, kind of, you remember that he's awful and hateful. But his nice part and your nice part can manage for the Because you can turn, you can, you can move into a different self. And, it, and you see, different self, it's still you because memory is, is retained across selves. Mm. Extre extremely ill people, memory is not shared. And that's what we call disturbed multiplicity. Right. Yeah, well, it's true. Even like you know, my, when I'm hungry and I haven't eaten, my girlfriend would be like, "You're mean." Like you know, I'm just like angry and just less tolerance for people. And yeah, and it's it's funny how like you know we do have all the different personality cells, and a lot of us just kind of reject certain parts of ourselves. But I've, after, especially after certain psychedelic experiences, I've just had to learn to at least try to to play to be at peace and integrate those different cells. And uh, sometimes you have complete counter opposite personalities you know you have your nurturing loving side and then your other personality might be like really mean and aggressive and but that's useful in certain situations you know so certain situations if you're not mean and aggressive you might get the crap beat out of you exactly exactly you have to stand your ground sometimes you know so and that's when it's useful to cultivate that aggressive nature of right. yourself yeah right so that it isn't that we all have an inner warrior but it would be nice if we did when we need it. Yes, exactly. And I would love so, to... Oh, sorry, continue. So what we found is people who get it, the two things happen. One is you're kinder to yourself. Because hmm. you say, 
it, you don't you no longer say, I don't know what got into me. You say the, the, the me that did that has some needs that really looks like they need, they need to be dealt with. Yes. It's funny because my girlfriend literally speaks like that now ever since her. It's like, oh, that Yusenia. I'm sorry. Excuse that Yusenia. She was just upset. <laughs> That's what, her name's Yusenia. Yeah. So, I remember uh, a friend of mine who, who said that she had this wonderful feeling when she was with a guy she liked, except when they would start to get too intimate, she'd close down. So what she realized is one of her selves was really a young child, and a young child doesn't like that. So what she learned to do is bring to her sexual bed a little teddy bear. So the little yeah. child part of the teddy bear, and she got to be with this guy. So she was, she was aware that these selves need, um, if you lock, if you kind of say, well, there's a part of me that's so bad, I don't want to talk about it, that part will hurt you yes because yeah because you've basically been hurting it and yeah. i i just very moving to an mdma um session and it was a vet with post-traumatic stress disorder and he was um maps was was one of their people and as you get over the hours he moves from discovering the part of himself that's so angry and so also suicidal and drinks to realizing that it's in a cage, realizing that he, another part of him, has put it in a cage and that it's just, it should be angry and he befriends that part and that part befriends him. And you see this all unfolding mm. where these selves begin to have a different relationship because they both can see each other. Wow. So this is really what we found is people who, who begin to think in selves are not only nicer to themselves, they're nicer to other people because, you know, there you have, gee, I've known this guy for eight years and, and we went out to dinner and I, I realized he cheated me. I'm not going to ever spend any time with that fucker. And he wait a moment, wait a moment. Yes, part of him turned out to be a cheat. <laughs> but most of them isn't, you know. <laughs> exactly. You can't just label your whole entire being because one small self did a certain act, yeah. I mean, see, that's what happens. Once you get that you're multiplicity, exactly, you behave differently to other people. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, you still dislike things that make you upset or that are terrible. But you don't necessarily think that's the whole being. Hmm. So that when someone, um, usually someone famous, I mean, we've had this thing in the States where we have various uh, right-wing Christian ministers who preach uh, unbelievably rigid goodness turn out to be um, not only gay and they've been against homosexuality, but they've, while, you know, after they come off stage telling everyone else to behave, they make it with their masseuse, right? And they get drunk and so forth. So they have a part that's really as deviant as their other side is deviant in the kind of right-wing righteous way. Yes, exactly. And the, the conventional way is, well, what are what hypocrites? And the answer is no, but they haven't worked out a way of harmonizing their differences. So they became more extreme. They became, in a right. both, both sides are kind of desperate. So that's what we've done. So reject, yeah. So they're like rejecting one side and overly attaching themselves to this one particular persona. 
I've noticed even that, like, even just in the spiritual community, even with myself, it happened for a little bit when I first had a an ayahuasca experience, and then I started getting more into spirituality, and I should meditate, and I should do all these things that make me a better person, but then I started rejecting other sides of myself, and of course, it just ended up coming out in ugly ways, and now I'm just at peace, like, yeah, I've got a deviant side, I've got an aggressive side, I've got a side that likes to party, I've got a side that, you know, likes to just mess around, you know, it doesn't always have to be exactly yeah exactly so um and that and that everyone in that room where your girlfriend many old people all those people have some needs yeah and if you don't i mean i know for example and this podcast is part of it um i like this okay <laughs> this is i think this is a good use of me you know i'm full i got a lot of stories i, I move my hands even though i'm not italian and so forth <laughs> If I if I do this, or if I teach a class, or if I go to a conference once in a while, not too often, a part of me is nourished. And if I do it too often, it's not nourishing because I don't need it that much. But it's 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 a the feeling of being well used is a wonderful feeling. Um, but it's like a really good meal. Mm. And it's like as I say to people, imagine you having your favorite dessert for ten days. <laughs> Yeah, you get over it, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not my favorite dessert. Yeah. We, so the parts, different parts of us need nourished. And what we've done with this book, this is not a self-help book. I did one of those. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's a pay attention and look around book, and you will change without noticing, because wow. you'll begin to see multiplicity everywhere. Okay? And if you think of it, you see, like the superhero movies, yeah, I they're love all, it. I love it. Yeah, all people say, "I'm I'm kind of a, a smart ass asshole," but when I'm a superhero, <laughs> you know, then I behave really pretty well. Yeah, usually, uh, and that's that's kind of playing out multiplicity at a kind of silly, you know, grand scale. But it's also saying that there's a part of us. See, there's there's the story, and I've seen it happen where the mother sees the child and the child is in the street and the car is where the brake is slipped is slowly rolling over the child. Okay. And the mother runs out, picks up the car, grabs the child and puts it down. Hmm. And then one of our tabloids shows up and says, we heard about this and it would really be terrific if you could do that for us and pick up the car. And, and she says, are you kidding? Do you know what that car weighs? I'm a 102-pound housewife. I can't pick up that car. Yes. Okay? And we have lots of those stories. Yeah, I've heard, of, I've heard a lot of those situations, yeah. That's great. Is, um, just, cause I was just watching um, a, a talk of yours, you're talking about the different cells, and something that came up when you were talking about when people get drunk, and it's like, yeah. uh, you said something about how psychotherapy is like the lo- has the lowest success rate for people yeah. who are alcohol, who are alcoholics, and also that going to therapy for alcohol is almost like your neighbor being a drunk, and then you're going to therapy for that guy. You know, I'm saying it's the, the the drunk. So you you get drunk and you have a wonderful time, and you break a bottle over somebody's shoulder, and <laughs> and you know, and they carry you home, and you're singing, okay. <laughs> and then the next morning. You have a hangover. You feel dreadful. Your stomach hurts you, you know. And the problem is the drunk doesn't feel the hangover. 
And then the hangover person feels so bad about it, he goes to therapy. And the drunk doesn't go to therapy, and that doesn't work. And so psychotherapy has like a 2% success rate. Hmm. Now, if you go to an AA meeting, AA has a brilliance. and They're just they're wonderful meetings because they've worked it out to make sure that the alcoholic self comes to the meeting. Hmm. If you go to an AA meeting, it's mainly stories. And you and what's wonderful, the system is really brilliant is you you've been there a while and you're still drinking and you say, you know, I'm drinking. And then you have this incredibly hard life story and it totally justifies why you drink. And then somebody else in the room who's been dry like five years has a story that's way worse than yours, just way worse. <laughs> and they stop drinking and their story didn't get better. OK, <laughs> but they stopped. So the alcohol person, the person who's drinking is with other people who really know who they are and are saying, you need to not be that self. And that you need to be the person who has the same terrible life situation, but doesn't drink to control them. Hmm. So the problem is that therapy is the alcoholic doesn't show up. And I'm remembering a book, wonderful book called Angela's Ashes. It's a memoir of a kid growing up very poor in Ireland. And his father has a not very good job. And when he gets paid, he goes and gets drunk. So by the time he gets home, there's much less. And his, his job is really garbage. But when he's drunk, he's really happy. Hmm. He sings, he dances, he's delightful. And he uses up the family food. Okay? But the selves, because there isn't communication, this one just can't wait to get drunk. And this one knows it's going to be you know, difficult and terrible and embarrassing and so forth. Hmm. So that's, that's, that's the – see, when you see that, so suddenly he's not an alcoholic. He has a self that drinks too much and he has a self that doesn't. And he probably has a couple of others. Mm. Yeah, and instead of like identifying with I'm an alcoholic and putting that label across all yourselves, it's good to just recognize that, no, this is one aspect of myself that comes out in this situation. And like, what uh, advice would you give to people uh, to integrate the different selves? selves? Um, the same advice I'd give to someone in a symphony orchestra who would say, how can I integrate the violin and the bassoon? Which is, you're after harmony, not integration. Integration is really close to melting. Right. See, see what we find is lots and lots of people and lots of theories talk about multiplicity, and then they often drop out, but there's really a single higher self. There's a better self. There's a good self. Um, I taught a system called psychosynthesis, which has that entirely, which is you have sub-personalities, notice the degradation, but you have then higher self, and your goal is to take all your sub-personalities and kind of suck them up. And it has some, it's a very lovely system in many ways, but, but what you then get is, but if there's no higher self, you're in trouble. Mm. And people say to me, but there, there must be a higher self. I say there might be, but wh what's its favorite candy? And they say, well, the higher self doesn't eat candy. Does it eat anything? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Why are you here then? Yeah, exactly. 
does it ever get dissipated? <laughs> what you see is that the higher self is this kind of etheric notion, which is the good part of us. Right. And the alcoholic has good parts, and so does the non-alcoholic. And so does the, the person who hates math and the person who knows how to do taxes. Hmm. And so you end up, um, one is you're never alone. <laughs> and what your girlfriend has suggested to you is um, there are, you, should, you kind of have to know who you're dealing with, and you have to learn how to shift cells when it's not in the right place. Yeah. I remember when I was first married, um, and at some point very early on, uh, my wife would come home from her job. I was a graduate student, and she had she worked, so I liked that. And she would come home, and sometimes she would not appreciate parts of me that the week before were okay. And at one point I said, why? I'm, I'm pretty much consistent in terms of this interaction. And it's when we discovered that during her period... See, this is one where women understand immediately that during their periods, they are somewhat, many, many, are somewhat different self. <laughs> yeah. Right? Say, I'm moody because I'm having my period. And you say, I'm cheerful because I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, no, that's not fair. And they say, no, it isn't. But, but we're, we're at least understanding that there are these different selves. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's like so, it, yeah, it almost seems like when you reject certain parts of yourself, it's it reminds me a little bit of like the shadow integration. Like when you reject yeah. a certain part of yourself, it's almost like a, a, a little kid throwing a tantrum and it's like, Oh, you wanna ignore me? All right, fine, i I'm gonna flare up and I'm gonna come out in really ugly ways so you're forced to deal with me. So that's exactly. that's what it feels like to me anyway. Well it is. It is. Literally, um it's you know, it's like in Aikido, there's there's various exercises of, of twisting, twisting your wrist. I'm remembering. Okay, you, you're twisting it to get more flexibility in these in these joints and ligaments. Yeah, but it hurts. Okay? <laughs> Until it hurts, that's the only way you know you're making a little progress. Well, there are parts of us that do that to ourselves, and we don't think it's a martial art. It's just, um, you know, I think you, you said it beautifully, which is, I'm actually hungry. But what comes up is something, someone mean. <laughs> and again, um, I didn't understand this at the time, but my daughter, the same one that has the vocabulary, um, she's an <laughs> associate professor and she gets to use a lot of vocabulary. Not that. Um, she's about three. And I'm in a little tiny corner of a room, which is, quote, my office. And it's about the size of a, again, go back in time, a typewriter table, a typewriter and a little chair. That's about as big as it is. If you stand up, you're out of it. And she comes in, and there's some interaction. And I'm whatever I call working. And she goes out, and I hear her say to my wife, is daddy tired? Meaning whatever I'd said to her that was mean or unkind or dumb, she didn't assume it was about her. She observed that her father was behaving in a way which he, she had seen before, that was that she was guessing was tired. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And an office. Yeah, it's a very good way of putting it. It's, it's even like, for example, if I'm like really focused and working on my computer, 
my girlfriend will know not to disturb me because I'm just like more prone to snap like all right what do you want kind of thing because I'm like I'm in the zone but it's not me it's not because I'm mean I hate you it's just I'm just focused really is focused and they can't relate very well because they don't have a girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) they are looking forward because they're part of the whole body they're looking forward to not being that person yeah having measure of completion and then saying okay okay now i'm here exactly yeah i'm back okay now i can give you some love (laughs) yeah it's so true well i'd just love to um end this conversation but just is there anything from like everything that you've learned through your journey from psychedelics is there anything that like you would any message that you would give to people who are going into this future generation maybe any I wouldn't say warnings, but maybe I'm just trying to phrase this question. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Thing is, is there some is there some incredibly wise, profound thing that I can <laughs> put in sentences? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but I can't tell you because you're not part of the special elect group. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, with psychedelics, the reason that I wrote the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide is it has a couple of chapters on how to have safe profound experiences because i think <clears throat> i'm a little biased against just recreation yes okay i understand that yeah yeah it's it's as if you believe in procreation there are certain things you just don't do alone mm. okay just so it's a bias okay which is i think psych high dose psychedelics are so incredibly valuable you shouldn't waste them yeah so it, it's just uh just to um give a bit more context for the question because something that comes up just in mind, for example, uh, the Terence McKenna, five grams, psilocybin mushrooms and darkness and like a lot of, you know, I feel like a lot of young people are doing that. So that's what I mean. Like, is there anything? I'll give you, I'll give you, yes. Terence McKenna, aside from being marvelous and fascinating and brilliant, uh, and after I read um, the biography of he and his brother, uh, a lot farther out, than I thought the what's it called parents made one terrible suggestion it's called the heroic dose the heroic dose is take more than is good for you and then make it harder by being alone make it harder by being in darkness and you're not allowed to complain when you feel that you not only have died in the nice psychedelic way but you really have died and you'll never get back and you're going to be in hell forever or whatever it is that's not, trips. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Okay. No. And the problem with a high dose, with too high a dose, is you actually don't bring anything back. Mm-hmm. And that's, but you have done, you have risked a lot and you bring nothing back. Yeah. Unless you're some, or like some mystic monk person, but then you wouldn't need to take psychedelics anyway. So it's like, yeah. I know psychedelics are some very high beings. And high beings, if you're taking psychedelics with them, they just track you. Okay? And you say, well, I'm now so much higher. And they say, oh, yeah, me too. Okay. <laughs> Finally get that they actually have a whole other level of, of, they've done a lot of work on themselves, and you haven't. So the advice is, the uh, there is no benefit in being stupid. Mm. And psychedelics, now we have enough information um, you know, it's, it's, it's like when someone gives you a very sharp knife and very sharp and says, it's very sharp. Be careful. 
You don't say, well, how do I know it's sharp? Oh, yeah, you're right. Look, it cut right into my... Okay. Exactly. Yeah, you don't have to do it yourself. You can just learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah. And yeah, just on that note as well, Terence McKenna ended up having, from what I know, he had a very horrific trip on, in his later years, which he's actually... I don't know if he stopped tripping altogether, but he, I know that he stopped tripping high doses. So even Terence McKenna himself, I don't know if he would agree with what he's saying. And the reason I bring this up because I've I've made videos I've done the heroic dose in silent darkness because I was a naive stupid person who thought oh yeah this sounds cool not even it sounds cool it just sounds like oh I I, I should take it to the next level right because I was listening to Terrence McKenna and I've since deleted those videos on YouTube because I started seeing very uh, unsettling comments of a lot of people like oh I, I want to try heroic dose now I want to try heroic dose now I'm like wait what the fuck am I doing I'm just spreading this ignorance right. to be frank and I, I kind of felt regret even not talking about it but putting it in the context as if it's a good thing to do well, uh, I've got an image that might be useful um, um, have you ever you swim and uh, do you dive uh, I haven't dived no okay if you if you if you're in a swimming swimming pool maybe 12 feet deep okay and and you dive off of the board which is a you know a meter off of the water oh just normal uh, so I thought you were talking about like scoop like proper scuba no. diving okay yeah, yeah I've done that yeah you can jump off and you can dive, and if you dive well, it's incredibly smooth and cool, and if you dive poorly, you smack yourself a little, it's not a big deal. And if you go up to a high board, you have to pretty well know much more what you're doing. The, the pool is still 12 feet deep, okay? And you know, if you know how to dive, you can immediately, it's not, it's not that hard if you learn a little, and, and if you hurt yourself, it's not much, and you... Um, and there are dives you can do where you can hit your head on the board, but most people actually don't try those. So Terrence McKenna says, how about we'll keep the pool 12 feet deep, but we're going to put the high board up now 100 feet. Okay. And my suggestion is don't do that. <laughs> How's that for my, my pristine, compressed advice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just don't do that. It's so true because like uh... – I think we go too unnecessary in the higher doses. And like what you said, it's very hard to bring stuff back. I mean, yeah, you could say I had a profound experience on those doses, but my best experiences have been like either the medium or the lower kind of doses where I can actually absorb the information. And, and it's more on a human level, whereas this high dose was just like, I, I can't even explain it. It's just, yeah, ineffable. Well, I mean, parallel with all kinds of drugs, we know that, you're taking serious pain drugs, they help your pain, or they kill you, depending on the dose. Um, I think alcohol is really a good model because moderate drinking is a pleasure. Yeah, I agree. And too much drinking, you pass out, you throw up, you know, that's not a pleasure. It's the same substance, but nobody ever says, you know what you should have is a heroic dose of alcohol. And so, actually, some people, I think Terrence McKenna said this, but I know at least a lot of people say this, is that, no, the psilocybin experience begins at the five gram mark. Anything less than that is not even an experience. Like, people will actually say these kind of things, which is, again, it's quite scary. And then a lot of people will be like, I'm going to try seven grams for my first dose. You know, and of course, I'm sure many times, and I've had a lot of people email me doing stupid stuff like this, and then they're like... They're broken up. To, well, I don't want to use the term broken, but they're, let's just say they're in a very tough situation. I mean, they've fallen off the high board. Yeah. 
yeah. and recovery can be very serious. So, yeah, I think we're, I mean, the idea that you shouldn't, you know, I think uh, Shulgin's has a wonderful quote. He says, you're looking at this, he says, don't ingest something you don't understand. Because he would look at a chemical that he'd made and he'd have this moment, he says, I'm the only person in the universe, perhaps, that's ever seen this chemical. Wow. And yeah. I'm going to find out what it's like, but I'm going to go really easy. Remember Hoffman started what he thought was as low a dose as, as could be conceived of, 250 millionths of a gram. This and is he, true, yeah. Right? Whoops! <laughs> Oopsie daisies. <laughs> yeah. The, the goal, if one wants to be a psychonaut, is to be able to get there on less and less and less. It's funny that, that you say that because I've I've been saying this actually for years. It's like you, the more I, the more experience I have with psychedelics, the less I need, and the I, less I need to do them, if if at all, really. Um, yeah. Do do you agree with the Watts uh, concept of once you get the message, hang up the phone? Do you think there's a certain amount that like a certain number that you reach where it's like, all right, I think I'm I'm good. I should probably just focus on human life, or is it just all subjective and? Well, I, re I remember someone saying that they had this experience and they were in the Akashic Hall of Records where all of human experience is recorded like some big library. And the the being comes over and says, what are you here for again? Which is, have you used everything that you've learned so far that you need something else? Or are you just trying to have, quote, experiences? So when I find people that have experiences, they actually make it harder for themselves to have them because they want to have eyes open, they want to wander around, they want to be with friends, they want to have music, they want to mix it with marijuana or, you know, more pastries. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? And it's, I think if we go back to the diving board, um, if you notice, you're wearing just what you need to, to do well in water. You're not carrying around a couple of books or a couple of ham sandwiches or uh, a couple of, you know, a couple of pints under your armpits. <laughs> so if you're going to use psychedelics, treat them as seriously as they will treat you. Mm. Well, as a, it's a good one line. Yeah, right? that, that, that is a good, I think that's a good one, a good line to end it on, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your profound wisdom, Dr. Jim Fadiman. Uh, no, I really appreciate your time here and it's like a real honor talking to you because like you're like one of the, the pioneers in this realm and it's like so, yeah, it's just a really cool full circle moment for me and um, yeah, just like to thank you again. Is there any, if people want to connect with you, is there anywhere where they can reach you? Like, do you have a website? Yeah, I have a web, well, actually not very reachable on the website but email is jfadiman one word, jfadiman at gmail. Beautiful. Okay, and I and I and I have no idea where to get drugs, so don't ask. <laughs> yeah, of course. One of, the, one of the problems of being a kind of public psychedelic figure is I actually obey the laws, which is somewhat depressing. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you, and, you kind of have to in your position as well, you know. Microdosingpsychedelics.com. Okay. Uh, is where the the main information there that's helpful is: Gee, can I take a psychedelic and I'm on this pharmaceutical or on this herbal supplement or on this Ayurvedic medicine. And so on that site, there's a little tab that says kind of interactions or medications. 
And so there's about 185 medication supplements and so forth that you can microdose with. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, because there's a very, uh, there's a lot of, there's certain substances like ayahuasca, you can't take um, antidepressants, SSRIs with them. No, definitely not. Dangerous interactions. But microdosing is, you know, you're not doing much. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, with the book, is this out yet? About the cells? Uh, not Healthy yet. selves, and, and and if we keep that title, because I, I I've dealt with a lot of publishers, and they say, can't we have a you know a sexier title? Because <laughs> when, when I put out the psychedelic explorer, um, they had just incredible awful titles, and I had a big fight with them, and I said two things. I said one, look guys, one thing that's different in this argument is I've read the book. Yeah, yeah. And the other is I know what you want, which is incredible sexual experiences with psychedelics. That's the title you really would like. But since the book has nothing to do with that, you haven't suggested. But that's what you want. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Then we. Oh, okay, so so do you, do you have a an approximate when this is going to come out? Uh, within a year. Within a year, awesome. I'm I, I'm genuinely really excited for this book. So, uh, okay. no rush. But yeah, just let, let us know when the when it's yeah. almost done. And... I will I will put on my hustler <laughs> self. <laughs> I mean, it's so nice with microdosing. Nothing to sell. It's such a relief. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't have a retreat center, and I'm not a cult, and I don't have weekly lessons. Uh, uh, I mean, it's. I mean, I've done all that stuff, okay. Uh-huh. And I, um, it's not the part of myself I like the best. Yeah. Okay. So you, you don't necessarily want to be the psychedelic guru. Um, I well, I want a little bit. Part of you is, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm my kind of guru, which is I talk to people now and then. And and, and the reason I wrote the book um, is so that people could have something to refer to and also get a bunch of information. I mean, the book had the first chapter about microdosing. Oh, wow. There you go. But now there's, you know, now there's lots of it. But the purpose was saying, here's something that you might look at because you don't know about it. And that's why you buy a book. Yes. Beautiful. (laughs) So anyway, I will let you know when the book comes out, and I'll probably send you a manuscript before that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, Jim. And um, yeah, that's it. Again, thanks again for coming on. And uh, I'll leave all the links in the description box below of all the websites that you just mentioned. And that's it. All right, guys. Take care. Awesome.